in the years I've been writing about domestic abuse, I've lost count of the horror stories victim survivors have told me about police. I've also sat with many who say a cop saved their life. Well, there was one particular incident and I knew that if I didn't run to the police at that moment that he would have killed me. This is Karina Hogan, who we met in the first episode. To be clear, Karina is an abolitionist. She is working towards a future without police or prisons. But in the system we have now, on this night in October last year, she felt she had no choice but to go to police for help. As Karina tells it, she and her then partner were at a birthday party. Things were tense. His cousin had just died a couple of months earlier. So it was quite an emotionally driven time. Mitchell had disclosed some child abuse that occurred for him a bit earlier that, and I wasn't really drinking. I'd had maybe three drinks that night, whereas he had drunk an unbelievable amount of alcohol. Karina's partner started hurling abuse at people at the party, including a woman holding a six-week-old baby. Karina was mortified. And I was saying, come on, mate, like, that's enough. And then his cousins were getting really worked up with him. When things started to escalate, the couple with the baby left the party. But soon after, there was a phone call. In a completely separate incident, this couple were being hounded by a driver in a fit of road rage. And I said, look, I'm sober. Tell them to pull into the local petrol station and we'll go pick them up. So I jumped in the car and also someone else jumped in the car with me. And we went and we assisted them. But by the time we'd got there, they'd been run off the road and were in a ditch and their car had been written. It was really bad and there was and I ended up going and literally picking the baby up and sitting on the side of the road and, and nursing this baby that had glass in its head and waited for the ambulance and the police and whatnot. Once the police arrived, Karina felt she could leave. She went back to the party to check on her partner. By the time we got back, Mitch was starting on a whole bunch of other people and they were like, you need to go, we're going to call the police and da, da, da. And I said, come on, let's go, let's go. And I finally got him in the car anyway. We got in the car and they said to him, if you touch her, you know, you know you're in trouble, da, da, da. That didn't mean anything. As they drove home, Karina's partner started laying into her with verbal abuse, interrogating her about where she'd just been, calling her a slut. She was trying to calm him down when he grabbed the wheel. I freaked out and pulled over and I said, I'm not driving if you, you know, you're going to continue. He was just like spitting in my face and screaming at me and yelling at me. And then he was like calm again and I I was like, I'm going to drive, but if you do this again, I'm not doing this. I'm not driving with you. It's not safe. You're going to kill me. And then we kept driving and then he did it again and I just pulled over and I jumped out of the car and grabbed the keys and started running in the opposite direction and that's when he chased me down and he just grabbed me by the throat and he held my throat until I passed out on the side of the road. I knew that just down the road was where the the police were, where the accident happened. So when I woke up with him over the top of me slapping me in the face, picked me up by the hair and and then he kept like, going, no, Mitchell, don't, like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, in his hands. And then he'd grab me by the throat again. And then he'd go, no, 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 don't do this. It was almost like he was having, like, an episode. Karina was so desperate, she ran out onto the road and tried to get a driver to pull over, but nobody did. Somehow, she managed to get her partner back into the car. She had a plan. 
She knew where the accident had happened and she knew the cops would still be there. So I drove and when I saw them, I just pulled over, ran across the road and started yelling at the guy that had run the other guy off the road in an attempt. I don't know what I was doing, but I wanted them to arrest me to try and get me away from him so that Mitch didn't think I was running to the cops. So I ran over to this guy and I was like, you are a prick, like you made these kids go to hospital. And then he was like, fuck you, you black slut, and rah, 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 rah. And I left my car there and the cops came over and they're like, what are you doing? And I was like, fucking arrest me, like just arrest me. They pulled me over and then the cops pulled me off to the side and I just said to the lady, please, I need you to get me away from him. I need you to arrest me. I can't get back in the car with him. Please just arrest me. Just say I've been drink driving. Please, please don't tell him that I'm telling you this, please. And then that's when she just, she was friggin' brilliant and she just ended up saying, you're under arrest and you need to go get into the cop car. So then she just went into my car, got my bag out put me into the back of her car and he kept asking questions. She was like, mate, I'm not dealing with you right now. She's been drink driving. She's been arrested. And then we left and went to the police station and I gave her a statement and told her what had happened because I was honestly petrified. Like I I feel like that could have very well been it that night. The next time Karina met the police, the response was the complete opposite. It was June 2020, and by that time, she and her partner had been separated for 18 months. His drug habit had spiralled out of control. He hadn't seen his kids for over a month, and Karina was still paying his rent. She'd pleaded with him earlier that week to just stay sober for a few days so the kids could see him on the weekend. And so I got there in the morning of, and I knew it wasn't right. There was something in my gut that said, this isn't, I shouldn't have done, I shouldn't have gone there. But I went against my gut because my children were dying to see him. And I'll be frank, I had a mortgage to pay and I really needed the money that he had taken from me. So I got to his house, we walked inside, we went out the back and I could tell that he was about five days old. Five days old means he'd been on a bender for five days. Karina could see that he was still high. She told him she'd need to get to the bank before midday so she could get the kids to a birthday party that afternoon. Her ex went ballistic and told her he was sick of her telling him what to do. But Karina refused to back down. And so he picked up this clump of dirt that was almost like a rock and he threw it at me and hit me on the back of the shoulder and I kind of went like that and it broke apart. I just lost it. I completely just started screaming. He locked the kids and himself in the house. I couldn't get out of the courtyard because of the way that it was sort of shaped. And so I picked up a paling that was in the garden bed and I was screaming at him saying, how fucking dare you? Like the kids were inside. I said, you, you're just like, I was just, I was, I can't even remember the words I was saying. But I did smash the window, I did pull the door and I kept pulling. And I just remember in my head when I was pulling the screen door, I was I was like, like there was no way I was going back. I had friggin' had enough. And I was pulling it and pulling it. Eventually I got in. And once I got in, the police had arrived at the front of the house and he ran out the front with the kids and I went and sat on the couch and I just had my hands in my in my lap. Karina was having a panic attack. When the police came in to talk to her, she just kept saying, I don't feel safe, I'm having a panic attack, 
I need you to give me some space. Those were the three things that I was saying. I also said to them on a number of occasions, he's done this before, I've had enough, I can't cope. And I said, are there any female officers? I don't feel comfortable talking to a male officer. And then he came back with, well, you know, but I'm a police officer. And I said to him, mate, this is no offence to you. Like, I swear to God, this is no offence to you, but you being a police officer does not make this any better for me. In fact, if anything, it makes it worse. That's when he came over to me and he said to me, well, then, Karina, if you feel that way and you don't feel safe with me, then I'm going to go around the corner and have a chat to Mitch. And when I get back, don't expect me to then protect you because apparently that's not what we do. The cops went outside. When they came back, they told Karina she was under arrest. And I said, you can't, like, you can't do this. You don't understand. Like, where are my kids going to go? There was an intervention order in place to protect Karina and the kids from her ex-partner. And he just arrested me anyway. This, I actually said this to him. I said, this is exactly why women die, because you come to these situations, you have no idea, and then I don't want to call you when he's doing things to me. I'm not going to call, like, and then he, he literally said to me, you've watched way too much TV, love, and just took me to the police car. When Karina got to the watch house, she couldn't breathe. A police officer came in and took her shoes off. And they put me in the detention unit for about an hour and I just laid on the concrete floor and I just thought, like, where's my kids? And I kept saying to the police when they were driving me to the police station, you can't leave him with my kids. He is at least five days old. He is drug affected. There is a DVO. You need, you have a responsibility. And then the lady ended up picking up her camera and going, tell the camera, love. And, and you know, Jess, look, I, I will take a degree of responsibility or onus on the fact that I was upset, very upset, very, very upset. But I think it's incredibly important to understand that there, it was a normal response to a lot of abuse and a lot of... And, and him throwing the rock at me was almost like it awakened all that anger. The next day, police took out an intervention order against her on her ex-partner's behalf, as if he was the one who needed protection from her. I felt so incredibly alone. I was so embarrassed. I was humiliated. My reaction was very normal, considering the adverse shit that he had put me through. But what the police were almost doing were validating his behaviours and saying, well, actually, he can treat you like this and you cannot defend yourself. You need to take it, you need to accept it, and you need to shut up. Listening to Karina tell these two stories, it struck me just how unconscionable that second police response was. Here was a woman who had struck an impossible balance between love and strategic resistance for years. She had even reported the father of her kids to the police. That's a massive step for anyone, but especially a First Nations woman. After all this time, after having her generosity and care trashed again and again, after almost dying at the hands of this man, she had committed an act of violent resistance to protect her dignity, her sense of self. And as she calmly asked for a different kind of help, the cop in front of her chose to punish her. 
These stories make us livid. They should make the cops who care about victim survivors livid. These are the kinds of stories that are making the police service the most controversial institution of the modern era. My name is Jess Hill, and you're listening to The Trap. What Karina faced in these desperate moments was what's known as the front desk lottery. So when victim survivors get a response from police, they have no idea who or what they'll get. Will it be a cop who tries to protect them? Or will it be one who dismisses them or even labels them the perpetrator? Now, some people listening to this will reject the notion that there are any good cops. But there are cops who dedicate themselves to protecting victims of family violence, of all cultural backgrounds. They're the ones who understand that trauma can make victim survivors aggressive, unpleasant, and they get why they don't just leave. They go above and beyond to try and create safety for victim survivors in whichever way they can. But there are still far too many police who regard victim survivors as liars and time wasters. And this is not just based on anecdotal evidence. In an actual survey of Victorian police, these attitudes were volunteered by serving police members. Said one senior officer... I mean, look, these people are adults and they can take care of themselves. If you think he's going to hit you, then just leave. Don't stick around and call us and expect us to come and kick him out of your house and do something proactive about it. I mean, that's the most frustrating part about it. I refuse to regard these people as a victim when they really do have a say in what happens to themselves. Coronial inquests into domestic homicides time and again reveal these fateful timelines in which cops didn't listen, didn't believe the victim didn't record the details, did not assess the risk. One family, after yet another inquest, revealed this same tragic pattern, made a statement that has always stayed with me. The adult children of Joy Rowley, who was murdered by a man who had become fixated on her, said in a statement, All our friends think you call the police when you're in danger and they help you. We know that's not how it works. It's like Russian roulette. Sometimes you get someone who will help. Sometimes, like mum, you get someone who doesn't take you seriously. Joy's children were clear. No amount of fiddling at the edges is going to fix this. As they said, it's the culture and the lack of accountability of police that needs to change. You know, you can tell there are certain signs where you can see that there's stuff that's not right. This is retired Sergeant Frank Caridi. He left Victoria Police in 2019. To him, protecting victim survivors was the most important part of his job. He had a sixth sense for it. You can see where, you know, like there's probably like that damage around the home. You know, sometimes you see patches in the walls where something's been thrown or something's been damaged and it's been repaired. Body language a lot of times. Sometimes you get a perpetrator who's just got his story down pat. He'll be the friendliest guy in the world and will say all the right things. He knew all these signs innately because he had grown up with them. I joined the police force because I was brought up in an environment that was just tormented with domestic violence. One afternoon from his childhood is still crystal clear in his mind. 
I walked out with my mum after she ran out of the house and we ended up walking down the street, sat on a uh, neighbour's fence where I could see her mind just ticking over, going through her options, going, well, what am I going to do? You know, I can't go back to Italy. I've got no friends here that are going to help me because, I mean, we're talking about, what, 60s, 70s, no one would give you refuge from domestic violence. So, you know, and after going through all those options, it was just one of those things where she just, after a while, got up and went home, you know, hoping that the dust had settled and realising that this was it. You know, this was her life and there was nothing she could do about it. As a kid, Frank did what he could to protect his mother. You know, I would provoke the situation to end up being the focus of the aggression and the hostility because it was sort of like, well, I don't want my mum to, to be the recipient of this, but I can take it, you know, so I'd sort of throw myself under the bus. When the police would get called, Frank would clam up. There's that sort of element of, I don't want to sit here and talk to you about how bad my family is. If you want to think I'm the bad person here, that's fine. I can wear that. I mean, strangely enough, I got to the point where I was a ward of the state at one stage where I was actually removed from mum and dad. And it was sort of being in a really horrible environment as a child, not being able to understand what was going on, responded to it in a very sort of aggressive, violent way, breaking things to the police coming along and going, well, this kid's obviously uncontrollable without looking at any of the other elements why. We need to remove him. Frank swore that when he grew up, he would do whatever he could to protect women like his mum. So he became a cop. That's why I would go to work. There is nothing more rewarding than having someone in the same position as, say, what my mum was. You know, you can see that and you can sympathise and you can just go, I'm going to fix this. I know what you're going through. I'm going to fix it. In 2019... Sergeant Frank Caridi retired following an inquest into the Burke Street Mall attack after he publicly called out Victoria Police for failing to stop the attacker, James Gargasoulis, when they had the chance. On duty that day, he had pleaded with the critical incident response team to intercept Gargasoulis after he stabbed his brother. They had refused to assist or engage because there was no proof that he was still armed. Nine hours later, Gargasoulis ploughed his car into pedestrians on one of the busiest streets in Melbourne's CBD, seriously injuring 27 and killing six people, including a three-month-old boy and a 10-year-old girl. In a letter to Victoria Police published by The Age, Frank Caridi said that Victoria Police had failed catastrophically in its mission to protect the public. When they've sent Frank a certificate of appreciation for his actions on the day, acknowledging him for embodying the highest standards and values of Victoria Police, he sent it back. I regret not being able to still be there and do this stuff for people. I have have a passion for family violence. But I I guess after Burke Street, I kind of just went, yeah, enough's enough. You know, if if I can't make a difference where, you know, I could prevent something like that happening, then there's no point in me being here. It's not that Frank just has an axe to grind. When he contacted me privately to share his thoughts on how police respond to domestic abuse, I asked him if he'd be willing to be interviewed. Honestly, I was amazed when he actually agreed, because it's still rare to hear recently retired cops speak publicly 
and candidly about what's going wrong with policing. I think the most common complaint you'll hear from anyone about the police is I complained about being involved in domestic violence thing and they did nothing about it. That's one of Frank's main complaints too. As a supervisor, Sergeant Frank Caridi monitored how his units would respond to family violence call-outs. Too often, he says, the first responders would arrive at a house having already decided to write it off. So a lot of times you would walk in, by that stage your, your members have already you know, worked out a story, they're going to write it off. And as, as someone who's been through that and can see the signs, you've got to go, no, 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 that's not going to happen at all. He needs an order and she needs some counselling. Frank says many of these frontline responders are young and inexperienced. They don't understand domestic abuse and they don't think it's their job to get involved in a couple or a family's private life. Because you kind of go, well, this is a couple and it's not my role to come along and tell them how to live their life. This is going to be a waste of time. You know, in two weeks, they're going to get back together again. And don't forget the culture is, hey, I'm a policeman. I want to catch bad guys. You know, I want to do death rolls over the bonnet of the car and run down the street and disarm a bomb in the middle of the main highway and save 100,000 people. I didn't join to be a counsellor. I didn't join to, to sit here and get yelled at by the victim who thinks it's a waste of time and I'm trying to do the right thing by her. This wasn't just something that happened occasionally. Frank says he had to frequently direct officers to follow correct procedures and was constantly fighting this culture in which downplaying an incident and ignoring warning signs was really all about trying to avoid work that was seen as futile. Now, my argument was always, but it's not a waste of time. Even if it's temporary, where we do something and it only lasts two or three days, it's still probably, hopefully, enough of a wake-up call where these two people will have a bit of space to kind of think about, is this really where I want to be? And from a, you know, an official point of view, the stuff's recorded. At this stage, we'll monitor it to see how it goes and we'll probably follow it up. Just like those Victoria police in the survey I mentioned earlier, the cops Frank was working with commonly framed victims as troublemakers who were unworthy of police help. Like things like, you know, she's just as bad as he is. She doesn't even want us here. They look at your social, economical sort of status. You know, oh, they're just some druggies. You know, it's, oh, yeah, she's a scrote, which is she's got a criminal record. She's a druggie. I'm not going to waste my time. I'm not going to focus my efforts on helping her out. You know, like, she just doesn't deserve it. And unfortunately, that culture of judgmental sort of behaviour exists quite a lot. Now, Frank concedes that the police who turn up at family violence call-outs are on general duties, and they tend to be snowed under with all the work that nobody else wants to do. So they're not just responding to family violence, they're on call for everything. Road traffic, breath testing, the list is kind of endless. There's a lot of pressure, and the natural thing is, is that when you're finding that you're not coping, you find these areas where you kind of just go... I'm just going to write this off because I've got all this other stuff I've got to do. And that's the reality. And dealing with family violence does take a bit of time. It can also be frustrating work for some police. If you want to look at it through their eyes for a minute, every day they get yelled at and abused by perpetrators. They will often return to the same houses week after week. 
and they regularly see victim survivors withdraw testimony or show up at court the next day like nothing has happened. They have a job to do, and it's easy for some police to start to believe that victim survivors are preventing them from doing their jobs. I've been in court where it was a result of what they call aggravated burglary, where the guys literally ripped the security screen off the door and walked into the girl's home and beat her up. And by the time it went to court, they're sitting next to each other holding hands, pointing at me going, you know, it's all him. He's done this. We're at court because he he wants to do it. We don't want this to happen. And I'm put in, a, in an embarrassing sort of situation where I've got to explain to a court why I've tied up their time for a couple that just want to be together. And what I explained to the judge at that stage, at that particular time, is if she wants to be with him, Your Honour, that's up to her. I'm not here to tell her how to live her life. But this behaviour is socially unacceptable. As a society, we won't allow this to happen. Now, I'm not going to control her, but at the same time, I'm not going to sit by and let something that's, that's unlawful just fly because she doesn't want to do anything about it. I'm not here to control her. I'm here to deal with the behaviour that is socially unacceptable. As we've heard over the past few episodes, it's no surprise that victim survivors will act in these inconvenient ways. And for Frank, it wasn't actually the victims who made his job difficult. Even when they cursed him for showing up or blamed him in court for starting trouble they never asked for. The problem, as Frank saw it, was not this perfectly understandable behaviour from victim survivors. It was the fact that the culture of policing is fundamentally incompatible with what's required to protect them. You know, dealing with family violence is a progressive, slow burn type of thing that could last for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. Now, in the police force, the culture is a quick fix solution. You know, you're not wearing your seatbelt, here's a ticket, you've gone through the red light, here's a ticket, problem solved, you pay the ticket, you know, and we move on. You've broken into home, come in, we're going to interview you, we're going to arrest you, you're going to go to court, problem solved, gone. Family violence is like that, you know. It's a progressive thing that will have ebbs and flows. It needs constant sort of re-evaluation, reassessment. It's not a an extremity where you just go, well, this is how we're going to fix it, done, let's move on. It doesn't work like that. They're different type of processes, but we're sort of throwing them into the same category and it's just not working. You know, it really isn't. In regards to tackling the problem of domestic violence, there is a lot of focus on perpetrators. Although I agree with this focus, where is a focus on the broken police system, which often further re-traumatises victims through police action and inaction? Chloe McArdle was nervous as she testified to the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry into criminalising coercive control. She was there as a firm advocate to reform the laws, but her anger about the way police had treated her was barely concealed. Now just imagine you have a perpetrator turn on you. You call the police for assistance because you've been assaulted and you feel unsafe and you want to leave your home, but you can't. The police arrive and immediately they evict you from your home. Now imagine over the next four months, the entire state police force uh, uh, aiding and abetting your perpetrator. During the court hearings, the police counsel minimise and excuse the violence you have experienced and accuse you of being a dangerous person 
and ask the judge to take away your rights again. Now, this wasn't just something to imagine. It was a nightmare. Not even a nightmare, because it was real. Isn't this just the most brilliant act by a perpetrator? They become the victim, and the police do the work of controlling and further traumatising and taking away the rights of the victim. It is brilliant, and it is utter madness, and it must stop. Chloe is a marathon swimmer. She has swum the English Channel 41 times, just shy of the world record holder, Alison Streeter, who is up to 43. Chloe is determined to swim at least another three times in the next couple of months to become the world's leading ultramarathon swimmer. I met Chloe at her home in Sydney. She lives in a high-rise unit with two small and very enthusiastic dogs who were happily playing out on the veranda as we sat together on the couch. Well, actually, the first time I swam the English Channel, it, was, it felt like I'd come home. So it was like my whole life had been building towards this moment, not knowing that this was really where I was supposed to be. When you're in the channel, what is it like? Because there's like quite a bit of activity, isn't there? Like other ships and all that sort of thing? Yeah, the English Channel is one of the busiest shipping ways in the world. It has two major highways running straight through the middle of it. So there are ships that are up to 800 metres long with sometimes 2,000 containers on the back of them that they're carrying and they're going at about 18 knots an hour. So it's quite a dangerous activity to be swimming through their highways and we're just tiny little swimmers with a little fishing boat next to us guiding us. So we have this, even though the channel is my spiritual home, I have this kind of love-hate relationship with it where it's like it's tried to kill me on multiple occasions. Yeah, I have a very interesting relationship with mm. this, this stretch of water and I think it's kind of like a metaphor for life. Chloe is the image of the all-Australian girl, a swimming hero. But increasingly, and by her own choice, she is allowing another part of herself to become known, the fact that she is a victim survivor of coercive control. Her mission is not just to broaden the public's idea of what a victim survivor looks like, but to change the systems that perpetuated her abuse. Ironically, it was coming out of that violent relationship which was harder than living in that relationship. So coming to terms with what I'd experienced, the new world that I had to navigate through fighting the police, the grueling process of going through the Australian court system and you know, other legal issues that were associated with it, it really wore me down and I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and reactive anxiety to that situation. What Chloe is describing is the systems abuse she suffered after leaving a violent and oppressive man who was, to begin with, of course, very supportive, very caring, very understanding, very loving. Like no one Chloe had ever met. My ex-partner knew my needs well. He really got to understand what sort of things that I was looking for, where I needed support, what love looked like to me. And he really figured out how to win me over. And when he, he did that, I just saw him as my whole world. Mm. And I saw him as my go-to person. And so that bond was very strong and it would have been very hard for anyone else to 
suggest otherwise because I had a lot of evidence that he was a wonderful person. But even as she was falling in love with this man, there were times when she definitely felt alarmed by his behaviour. Yeah, so really early on there was one point where I was locked out of my home, denied access to my car, one of my dogs was taken away from me, I had no money on me, which my perpetrator knew about, and it was New Year's Eve, and I was like, well, what am I going to do? I only have the clothes I have on me, one dog, and whatever I was holding in my hands at that point. So that should be a red flag that that's not a good relationship. So often there's just so much confusion that your head is just, you're just going round and round in circles trying to figure out what's going on. And I feel like that's a really underrated part of going through coercive control. Was that kind of confusion and just constantly facing all these contradictions, was that a big part of your experience? Yeah, it's great that you mentioned confusion and contradictions because that kind of sums up, I guess, where I'm at. There's like things going on I can't really make sense of. And I wasn't necessarily consciously in fear, but subconsciously I was because there were times where I would push my bed into the door so that the door couldn't be open so he couldn't get in my space. So most of the time I can't consciously say, I was fearful of him, but there were times where I was worried that I couldn't necessarily clarify to another person or articulate exactly what I was worried about, mm. but I was worried enough to barricade myself inside a bedroom. And I guess it's a thing, there's a difference maybe between admitting to yourself that you feel afraid, because that would be a sign that something is wrong, right? And, and a lot of the time you're trying to rationalize like, it's okay, it's okay, we're going to just get through this, you know, it's just having a bad day, week, month, you know, whatever. And I think when you when you feel scared, it's like admitting to yourself that something is wrong. Definitely, because if I admitted that I was really scared of him, it would mean that I would have to break up the most important relationship in my life, which I was not prepared to do. I'd have to accept that he was a violent person, which I could not bring myself to comprehend. I didn't even know what coercive control was. I just thought that... Some people act poorly. I didn't realize that those things together can become a part of domestic violence. So if I think in my mind that I was so committed to the relationship, I'd just put up with anything. What Chloe put up with would be familiar to so many victim survivors. He would degrade her for not doing enough around the house, not cooking dinner the way he liked it. He tried to turn her against her sister. He would lock her out of the house. He destroyed her possessions, monitored her social media and bank accounts. He even withheld medication from her once when she'd just come out of an intensive care unit. I was like, why do you do these things to me? And he said, because you hurt me and I'm going to hurt you. And I was like, <laughs> why can't we just talk things through? Like all relationships have issues. He told her constantly that she was crazy and she started to believe him. And she felt for him. He'd experienced a lot of trauma. He seemed unable to deal with it. And so he self-medicated with alcohol. I gave this person a lot of time and I gently, gently tried to help them through the things which may be triggering someone to need to abuse alcohol to medicate to get through every day. Mm. And the way that this person regained power and therefore sense of self and confidence and position was to do things 
to make my life, like living hell. Chloe didn't want to leave the relationship, but she would call the police when she felt scared because she knew it would calm him down. I felt confident enough to call the police because I had this naive belief that the police are there to support victims and they can be relied upon. Like, like that was just my, like, 100%, that's my belief. So I would call him and he would know they're coming and then he would just manage to kind of get himself together to front them and just act like everything was fine when they arrived. So, but he had to go through a process of changing his demeanor, changing a bit of his attitude, and because he knew they were coming, like they would always come. So he, like, he was pissed off at me that they were coming, but he actually changed. So it, in some way, he calmed himself down, and that was a strategy that had been successful in the past. But the last time I used it, I called them because I wanted to leave the house. Chloe's partner had been fuming for days over something she'd done on New Year's Eve. Basically, I, I drunk alcohol. <laughs> that was his issue, right? Shocking. He's like, how dare you drink? Like, <laughs> the yeah. irony is, he's an alcoholic. So he's doing this seven days a week. He played his usual handbook. He locked her out of the house and turned up the TV so loud it was impossible to be inside. When she asked him to turn it down... He attacked her. He flipped over the couch where I was and then he, he scratched at my, my neck and my body and that's when he pulled my pants down and called me a whore. And so like, I didn't think he was going to kill me, but I was, I was shaken up and I wanted to leave the property. That's why I wanted to get my car and leave. But Chloe's partner had parked her in, which meant she physically couldn't leave. So she called the police. So I called them, I met them at the door and he was in another room far away. I do, I do not think he heard what I said to them. I think that he thought I made, I told them what had happened. So I think he's thinking, oh my God, she's told them what's happened about this assault that's happened. I need a counter story because this is gonna go bad. And so, cause it's the first time he's ever made up a story like this. When the police went and spoke to Chloe's ex, he told them she, had attacked him. Then they come over to me and they said, look, did you want to say anything? So did you give me another opportunity to say something? I didn't. I, I was concerned about what would happen if I made an allegation. I didn't want to, at that point, break the relationship up. Police evicted Chloe from her home for a week, on the spot. Uh, still couldn't access my car because he said he couldn't find his key to his car. So I was put in the back of a police car Kindly, they let me take my dogs because that was the most thing I was worried about. So I grabbed my dogs, I grabbed my computer, my money. I was taken to the police station. When you look back now and, and that moment the police are saying, do you want to say anything? Why do you think it was that you didn't want to say anything in that moment? I knew he's a very private person. He would not like anyone finding out about any information that was not either neutral or positive about him. And I knew it would make him extremely angry. It wasn't worth it. In, in my particular situation, I was overwhelmed. And there's no way that physiologically my brain could handle that situation. So it's hard for people to, to rationally ask, you know, why didn't you do X, Y, Z? It's like, well, I was under an extreme, an extreme stress so I'm just going to go into whatever autopilot 
my brain and body goes into to survive this moment. It might sound like Chloe was acting irrationally, but the survival calculation she was making was actually a shrewd one. She was keenly aware of how fragile and potentially dangerous her partner was. I do think he has huge issues with shame, not sharing with people things that compel him to drink alcohol on a daily basis just to get through his day. Mm. So extremely private person who will not let me talk to anyone outside a relationship about the relationship. The fact I've called police to the house knowing that the neighbours may see these police. Like I'm already very much living on the edge just calling the police before mm. even getting to the point of making an allegation. Like that's not, that was not in a good or clever thing to do at that point in time. It's like you've broken the agreement and broken the code, which is like... Oh, yeah, it was definitely a code. That's a great way to look at it. The code was you don't talk about anyone. I've already broken it by calling the police. I've already upset him by calling the police. Why would I want to test that any further? Like, I don't... Like, my point what to call the police was to de-escalate him, not escalate things to go further. Mm. That was like, if you look at the police reports... It was always call the police. They just they come, they have a little chat, and then they would go. And that was how I operated. I was de escalating. Not I never wanted things to escalate. The lady that evicted me from my home was a is a female police officer. She was extremely patronising, which was really horrible. She said to me when I was trying to leave that I couldn't because I couldn't access car. She's like, well, why don't you just leave him? I've got two kids. I left my partner. Like you know, it's just. He was like, whoa, like, you do not understand what I'm dealing with here. I can't just make decisions which seem really easy on the spot like you seem to have. But I just kind of looked at a strange. I couldn't even think that through. So what happened when you actually went to the police station? My family met me there, which was great because I needed, I needed to be able to move. I didn't have access to my car still. So they arrived. My sister saw a scratch on my neck. She's like, have you been assaulted? And I'm like, yeah, yes. And then she's like, you need to make a statement. Because I could not, at that point, as a victim in that situation, I could not think rationally about what's actually in my long, medium to long-term best interests here. I needed someone else to help me through that situation. What Chloe goes over in her mind is if her sister saw the scratch on her the minute she laid eyes on her, why didn't the police just take a closer look try harder to assess what had happened before they evicted her. Like, if she just walked up to me and saw it, why did they not even think, okay, this person may not be able to comprehend what's going on from the moment, let's take some initiative. Let's just have a look, is she okay for us to look over, you know, her exposed skin Mm. to just see, you know, what's like, like, take another chance to kind of assess the situation now that we're away from that home environment, which is obviously very stressful. So Chloe decided to take the initiative herself. Against all her instincts, she gave them a full statement. Her story should have turned around at that point. But it was just the beginning of an ordeal that would eventually see her leave the state, fearing she would never be safe. Not because of her ex-partner, because of the police. So my name is Paula Smith. And I used to be a New South Wales police officer and I joined in 94 and I stayed in the cops until 2010 and I left in a whirlwind and it was a complete disaster mm. and basically signed off with PTSD. 
Wow. So, so what happened? Mm-hmm. Why, why did you leave? And this is probably opening up a big story, but why did you leave? Um, I'd been suffering anxiety for probably about 12 years. I definitely got it in those first three years on the job and it just, I didn't deal with it. So I thought I was, I thought I was being mindful and I was very healthy looking after myself, but I just couldn't cope with the insidious male domination and which was basically eroding away who I was. So I became the crusty old senior constable that I didn't want to be. And that's that's when I, when I saw that, when I saw that happening, I went, okay, I can't do this. But I was still turning up to work because one I had mortgage, I had, you know, kids, had support, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe I can just get some support. So I went and got the therapy. But in the end, yeah, I just turned up to a job where I was literally inside a hospital and I thought I probably should be here myself. So I went, actually, I need that help that she's getting and walked out and went, can't do this anymore. Wow. And, you know, when you say you became the crusty senior constable, (laughs) you never wanted to be, what what sort of things was that senior constable doing that you, when you first started, might have said, I would never be like that? One thing I learned early in my career was police avoid work as much as possible. So they will try to, it was called discretion back then, but it was very much about minimising things, sort of brushing them to the side or leaving out details so that it didn't turn into what I was known for, which was a shit storm. So I tend to attract things because I would ask too many questions or I would find out more stuff. You, you just can't compete when you're being told, don't worry about that, that's not important. Mm. What sort of things <laughs> were you being told not to worry about? They had a lot of quotas, so things like domestic violence was a big one and quite often those statistics, especially in the early 2000s when they were relying on uh, an assessment by, you know, the assistant commissioner, they would fudge those stats. Like they would literally, they'd go, I'll turn it into a statistic but only take from, you know, 8 o'clock on the Monday morning through to whatever it is on the last day and then they would literally be directing people, don't put that event on until the next day so that it wasn't counted in the stats. And that's when when I saw that, I went, what the hell is going on? But that gives you a name for a troublemaker. Mm. So you can't even really speak up about that. You can say stuff, but then you're literally isolated and locked out. So that's that's why I end up going, this is not, I'm, not, I'm in the wrong arena. I'm not making a difference. How was domestic violence being dealt with at that later part of your role as a police officer towards 2010? Yeah, I would say they were they were trying, but it was still very much a focus on the offence. Finding an offence, if it wasn't an offence, then it wasn't really a police matter. Mm. And there was a real distinction. So whereas before we would turn up for, you know, breach of the peace and we would try and help them out. So I, I mean, I was the type of investigator that if I had a domestic, I would actually introduce them to the person on the other phone, you know, to the the helpline and tell them the story so they didn't have to repeat their story again to them and try and really facilitate that contact. So there, there was a connection. I know other people just got handed over a card and said, you need to ring the victim's support unit. Mm. So there was just different methods of, of doing it. But because I had been involved in it and I'd had a lot of dealings with victims and offenders there was something missing so mm. I could and I just sort of started to do my not my own thing but it was very much I just went okay well that's she doesn't want him charged right now because she's not out of the house or how do we look at that but I was yeah basically we were told charge them there was a lot of direction around doing no investigation just do what the incident is which was also the focus 
only deal with the incident that you've got. Put a bit of back history in. I think we need to make it really clear that victim survivors faced with this lack of interest from police are routinely facing the very real threat of being killed. Kathy had been with her partner for years. She was in that trap of coercive control. The abuse had been abhorrent. He'd made false allegations about her. She had tried to find a refuge. But because there had been no physical violence, she wasn't deemed a high enough risk. She literally had nowhere to go except to return to her husband. But she was afraid. She was going to live with her husband at his father's rural property. She knew there was a firearm in the house and that it was unregistered. So she went to the police. And I said, look, I'm scared. I'm going back to my husband. We've had some issues, but I don't think everything's okay. There's a firearm in the house, it's unregistered. Can you please raid the house and get that firearm out of there? And they said, does, does he have mental health issues? I said, oh, I don't think so, I don't know, because he made me believe I was the one that was crazy. The officer on the front desk told Kathy it wasn't a police issue and that she should speak to some mental health people. I went down to Anala Mental Health and I, I was begging, please, can you just help me? You know, At that point in time, I wanted to be committed because I just wanted some escape. And nobody would do anything about this unregistered firearm in that house. Kathy's instincts, like the instincts of so many victim survivors, were absolutely right. At 3.30 one afternoon in April, she was unloading a truck on their rural property when her partner's brother poked a rifle through the truck window and shot her. The first shot missed, the second got her in the hip. It was starting to storm and for a minute, Kathy thought she'd been struck by lightning. She called out to her husband who was standing nearby. I didn't even re- didn't register in my mind that I'd been hit shot. with a bo- shot with a bullet that had gone through my hip and th- through my guts. So I, I put my arm out. I thought, oh yeah, it's lightning. And my husband went as far away from me as what he could. Eventually, I fell to the ground. It seemed to take forever. The third shot was fired. It missed my head by 0.2 millimeter. He kept firing. After neighbours called the police, Kathy's brother-in-law shot 150 bullets in what became an hours-long siege. I laid there in the ground. It was getting nightfall. I was in a place that I didn't know. And I was lying in the dirt bleeding. And I could hear sirens. There was choppers above and there was SWAT squads out there. And nobody would come and fucking help me. And I just lay there like a bloody dog. And all he had was a rifle. And those guys out there, they had fucking machine guns. They had pop. And they would just, they just left me there. Eventually, like, I crawled out the gate. And this was on acreage. So it's a long way to the front gate. So I, I crawled out. I literally slithered like a snake to the front gate. And eventually, I was airlifted to the hospital. Police charged Kathy's brother-in-law with attempted murder and human torture, among other charges. She believes the motive was greed. The will for the father of her husband and his brother had not been settled. 
Police questioned her husband, a man who had made Cathy's life hell for years, but they couldn't connect him to it. And what I was told by the detectives is either he's extremely smart or he's absolutely stupid because they, they couldn't work him out. He was so good at what he, he did. Not only did he, could he manipulate me and control me, but he couldn't, they couldn't even charge him because he was so good, because uh, whether it was the training in the army or whether it was his upbringing, and they, they, somebody made him like that. All of this, the shooting, the investigation, the trial, could have been avoided if the officer sitting at that front desk had just taken Cathy seriously. What frustrates me is if those police down there, when I went into that office, just went and did raided that house, I, I would not have the issues that I have. I have 30% feeling my leg. I have some internal stuff going on. I, I have obviously post-traumatic stress. And for the last nine years, I've been trying to get my life back to what it was, and I can't. Because somebody wouldn't listen. It was 2018 when Chloe was evicted from her house on a seven-day safety notice, three years after Victoria had held a royal commission into family violence. And they were like, there's a lot of pressure on police to be seen, to be acting. We need to intervene. And it's a common thing because they, they perceive that parties need to be separated. So this separates two people. And in fact, in their mind, in the police's mind, it doesn't necessarily matter who the order is placed upon because the main thing is that the parties are separated and they've done their job of separating two parties where there may be violence. So they were like, I don't think it was a big deal. They they got to that house at that night and they're like, we're going to give this to someone. Someone's made an allegation, someone hasn't. Well, we'll just make sure that the person who hasn't made the allegation will put it on them. So to them, it like didn't really matter who they put it on as long as they were seen to be doing something. Did it matter to you? Well, yes, it does matter to me because I, it just, it's increased my sense of fear dramatically. I went from a situation where I felt I was semi in control to things were way out of control. My post-traumatic stress was going through. The stress of leaving was enormous. In the relationship, Chloe tried to manage her partner. She could predict his moods, discern his patterns, know when he was drunk and becoming dangerous. Now, with no contact, she was in the dark. And that actually made me more afraid of him because I could now no longer predict what he was going to do. But then also I became fearful of the police because they'd taken all these rights away from me. They automatically believed his allegation and then they started to support him through the civil process to then get an intervention order against me that was longer than seven days. Despite evidence of injuries and Chloe giving a statement about the assault, Victoria Police continued to pursue the intervention order on behalf of her ex. Now it's like, well, it doesn't matter necessarily where he is because it's not just about him anymore. It's, it's like I can't feel safe wherever the police are because they can, without justification, do things to me, which I never thought was possible. I was always on edge. Like, even when I was asleep, I was on edge because there, there was no safety net 
left. There was no security I could feel left. And so my post-traumatic stress was just going through the roof because it wasn't about how dangerous one person was. It was, well, I'm not safe anywhere now because I have no idea what the police are going to do to me because I, I can't predict their behaviours either. By the time Chloe testified at the New South Wales inquiry, she was almost shaking with anger. If intimate terrorism occurs when one partner in a relationship, typically a man, uses coercive control and power over the other partner, then what do you call the state actively supporting intimate terrorism? I would call that state-sponsored terrorism. It was very successful. I was terrified. My perpetrator used the resources in the mind of Victoria Police and in particular the Police Legal Council who grilled me under cross-examination, questioning my testimony from the incident in 2014, saying that being grabbed by the neck and being put to the ground couldn't have been that bad because on that particular occasion, I hadn't called the police. Police legal counsel minimised and excused my perpetrator's violence in an Australian court of law and used an example of the perpetrator's violence against me to support their case to further restrict my rights. Chloe applied for an intervention order against her ex. This is what's known as a cross-application, where both parties have applied for intervention orders against each other. When it came to the first morning of the full court hearing, in which the police were to represent Chloe's ex, their records showed a history of incidents in which he had been named the perpetrator, and they withdrew their support for him. And it's about to go to the full court where it's just him and his lawyer against me and my lawyer. So there's no police. They just walk out. They're not involved anymore. And there's they don't support you. Oh, no. No. No, definitely not. They just disappear. There was a survey done of Victorian police and their attitudes towards policing more generally, and they just mm. sort of offered their own opinions on, on family violence. And one, I think it was senior constable or senior sergeant, said that there are police who love family violence and then there are others who hate it. That's a real love-hate thing. And that really stuck with me. I was like, what, what is it like when, when you have police who hate it? How does that affect the police who love it? You know, that, that internal culture around that, is that what you sort of saw that there were police that, like yourself, who would really go above and beyond and think about that individual person, not just what the protocols are, like, you know, mm. talk on their behalf if they needed that to the victim helpline, etc. And then there are people who are like, I didn't join the force for this. Yeah, just another bloody domestic. This is former cop Paula Smith again. And, and it's hard to work with those people. It's hard to work on the other car when you've got them, you know, they're sitting in that car and you're this car and you're the only one turning up to all the domestics. Mm. But there was definitely a divide and I think that that was hard for the individual cop because they thought that I was too close to it, too personal. But you sort of go, but that's why we join. We want to help. And also I think it reflected on their stats as well, which is another, which goes back to that. Like it's very much about why, what their agenda is and, you know, to get a lock up for a domestic violence offender is not the same as a robbery offence. It's like an invisible point system mm. that gets you notoriety or gets you noticed or gets you where you want to be in what promotion. You... There were some that wanted to be straight up in charge and that's they wanted to get there and that was a way for them to be there. So if it was, if domestics took, like some take eight hours to sort out, they didn't want to spend their whole shift doing that. 
Before I'd spoken to Paula, I'd heard the exact same thing from Frank Caridi. He was clear on the fact that despite the PR about police taking domestic and family violence seriously, it still wasn't rating much of a mention when police were getting measured for their performance and considered for promotion. You know, when you do your performance review, they don't even look at how many domestic violence or domestic abuse cases you've gone to and what you've done to resolve it. They'll look at how many infringement notes you've issued, how much, you know, briefs for criminals that you've processed, but family violence or family abuse doesn't even come into the equation. They don't yeah. look at that. So they yeah, don't look at it at all. It's not seen as something that's going to assist you in your career path as a police. That is exactly it. That's exactly it. And they kind of go, well, why am I wasting my time doing all the paperwork for this when they're going to get back together in two weeks, whereas it's interfering with my career path. I could be out looking or going, executing that warrant on that druggie or giving out tickets for people not wearing their seatbelts. And instead, I'm, I'm, I'm hindered by doing this because these people can't get their act together. Really so, weird that, like, that it's not considered to be something worth measuring because, as you would have mm. noticed, like it can be the most dangerous call out you have. And you don't yeah. even know until you get out there. I mean, it's as far as policing is concerned, it requires all of those skills about being prepared for the worst case scenario, how you respond, subtlety, etc. You know, incredible skill set is required really to handle these incidents adequately. You would think that that's exactly what the police would want to measure. And you would think that in Victoria, particularly, where you've had commissioners from, you know, Christine Nixon on through Ken Lay, now with Graham Ashton, there's a lot of very positive things being said by senior management about, you know, policing domestic abuse and how important it is. Yes, that's right. And, and look, there is a separation between what organisations like that want you to perceive as compared to what actually happens. I asked Paula how it felt to have this incredibly difficult work virtually ignored by her superiors and even possibly detrimental to her career in the force. I mean, I would get the greatest satisfaction from victims, though, when they ring up and go, thanks for your help. You know, you really helped me out. And that was both, I'd get that from offenders as well, because, you know, when you're helping them to understand what's going on Mm -hmm. and what the opportunities are for them to get help or create change in their family dynamics and have access with their kids, then they would go, they'd ring up and go, you know, I just want to say thanks because it had been a bloke, I probably would have punched you in the head. But that was my reward system. Domestic abuse is core business for police. In Victoria alone, police responded to a record 88,214 family violence incidents in 2020 alone, which consumed 40 to 60% of frontline police time. In some areas across Australia, the percentage is even higher. So this is not just some niche task that some police resent doing. This is the number one law and order problem in this country. Senior leaders of Victoria Police have for years now spoken about family violence being a top priority. In 2018, Victoria Police announced a new five-year strategy to pursue family violence as urgently as terrorism. Family violence investigation units would be staffed with detective and intelligence practitioners, and 208 additional specialist family violence police would be deployed across the state. 
There is now also trauma-informed training at the new Centre of Learning for Family Violence, and that focuses on explaining to police that coercive and controlling behaviours can be equally, if not more, traumatising for a victim than physical forms of violence. And Family Violence Command Assistant Commissioner Lauren Calloway recently told the Herald Sun that Victoria Police have launched a new initiative analysing previous cases of victim misidentification to learn how that error was made and to reconnect with the misidentified victims and ensure they're now protected. After Chloe McArdle told her story on the SBS Insight program, Callaway contacted her to apologise. And yet, these problems persist. It's not the specialist officers, by and large, who are failing victims of domestic abuse. It is those frontline officers and the old guys in middle management who, no matter how much training they get, continue to hate dealing with family violence. I want you to consider a parallel. So imagine if a large percentage of firefighters resented putting out bushfires. They like riding in the truck and attending house fires, but they just hate bushfires. So when they show up at a grass fire, they don't reach for their hoses, but instead turn to each other and say, look, it's not like the whole forest is on fire. It's just a little grass fire. Let's just leave it. It'll probably burn out on its own. And besides, maybe the bloke who set this grass on fire had good reason to do it. If just one story like that hit the media the nation would reel. There'd be calls for an immediate inquiry. The firefighters themselves would probably be fired, if not criminally charged. So why doesn't this happen? Because firefighters want to fight fires. That's why they're firefighters. Police call-outs are increasing. More victim survivors are reaching out, trusting that they'll be helped. Some will find cops who will help them, Some will be treated with disdain or worse. For some victims, how police respond will be a matter of life or death. Domestic violence is now core business for police. It is a huge part of what policing is. So there's an urgent question that's facing police right now, both as individuals and as an organisation. It's not just, can you do this job? It's, Do you even want to do this job? As an abolitionist, Karina Hogan has a clear position on this, but increasingly perspectives like hers, which were once considered to be fringe, are becoming more mainstream. I'm really, really sorry that police officers are put in that position. I don't think that it's fair on them either to have that onus put on them where they have to... do something like, it's like asking me to do a gymnastics routine. I don't freaking know how to do a gymnastics routine. You know, I'm a journalist and I'm a bloody board member. You know, it's, it's asking a certain group of society to do something that they're not equipped to do. When it's a, it's a system that is inherently built on using force and violence to, to stop things or to make things happen. It's almost like a perpetuation of violence in, to, a, to a degree, I think. Next time on The Trap, we go deeper into the cultural issues within law enforcement and see what happens when the people paid to protect victims of violence are perpetrators themselves. 
You've been listening to The Trap, proudly brought to you by the Victorian Women's Trust and its harm prevention entity, the Dugdale Trust for Women and Girls. We'd like to thank all of our supporters and donors. Special thanks to Equity Trustees and the Phyllis Connor Trust, the Bokhara Foundation and a private donor. Our creative producer and editor is Georgina Savage. Co-producers are Ali Oliver-Perham, Maria Chakuti, Mary Crooks and Lucy Ballantyne. Special thanks to Leah McPherson and the team at the Victorian Women's Trust. The Trap was mixed by Rami Sher and Paria Tahezadeh. I'm your head writer, producer and host, Jess Hill. This podcast was produced in Sydney and Melbourne and we respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of this land, the Gadigal of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We would like to acknowledge the victim survivors and others who have generously shared their stories and expertise. If today's topics have raised any issues for you, help is available. Contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or if you are seeking specialist LGBTQI support, contact WITH RESPECT on 1800 542 847 or see our show notes for a full list of support services. For more information about this podcast, including show notes and resources, visit www.thetrap.com.au and follow The Trap Pod on Instagram. You can also find out more about the Victorian Women's Trust via their website, www.vwt.org.au, or follow them on social media, at Vic Women's Trust. Thank you for listening. <laughs>